Today on Government Matters, another inspector general fired. The head count now five. Two former inspectors general on what it means for the IG still working and the entire oversight community. Remembering our honored dead on Memorial Day weekend, the leader of the National Cemetery Administration at the Department of Veterans Affairs tells you how cemeteries are preparing even through the pandemic. And data is driving the government's COVID response. The leader of the data effort at the State Department reviews her agency's data strategy. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Five inspectors general are out of a job or reassigned in just the last two months. Those firings and vacancies lasting to up to around 2,000 days have prompted some thought about reforming the oversight system in the federal government. John Reimer is principal at Lynch Consultants, former inspector general at the Department of Defense. Jim Taylor is former deputy inspector general at the Department of Homeland Security. Gentlemen, welcome to the program this morning. Thanks for joining me. Jim, I'll start with you. What's your takeaway from the exoduses and reassignments that we've seen in the IG community in just the last two months? Well, Francis, it's good to be here, but they, they're they pretty startling, but it's not new. I mean, the, the inspectors general always straddle the fence between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And it's not the first time that uh, this intimidation has occurred. It's, uh, you know, famously when President Reagan came in, he fired uh, a lot of inspectors general, ended up hiring a bunch back after the pressure, after the backlash. Um, however, you know, it's a constant struggle and it's a constant ba balancing act. The IGs are supposed to be independent. However, they are nominated by the president. They can be fired by the president, as we are seeing, with just a notification to Congress uh, 30 days in advance. Um, so the pressure is always there and, and nobody likes oversight, no matter what administration you're in. I mean, no matter how much uh, positive talk and positive thinking that people give to this. The, the bottom line is that it, the IGs are supposed to have access to everything that's going on within the department, and often department heads don't appreciate the fact that they can't stop them from printing or reporting on what they're seeing. John Reimer, what's your takeaway, and would you use the term intimidation the way that Jim just did? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, that I would use that word. I would say that some of this, it, it is it is alarming that so many uh, inspector general actions have been taken in the last several weeks. But I think if you step back and take a, uh, take a view over the last several years, some of these actions are the result of positions that have not been filled for a number of years. Uh, and the White House and the president are taking actions to fill those mm -hmm. positions. Some of them are uh, folks that have been in office for, for some time and certainly the, the IG Act does allow the president to remove an inspector general. And the way the act is currently written, um, it really doesn't say that the president has to have calls. Uh, the president simply needs to communicate in writing the reasons for a removal to both houses mm -hmm. of Congress, uh, not later than 30 days uh, after uh, after the action. So it um, to some degree, it's it's. Um, uh, things that have a number of positions, the things that have been open for a while. Uh, certainly, um, it's uh, but the, the fact that we've had five of these in the last uh, 
several weeks uh, is a little concerning. A number of former inspectors general writing to Congress and saying, here are some things that need to happen in order to shore up the inspector general community across government, John. One of those is uh, having IG serve five-year terms, and another of those is making all IG positions Senate confirmed. What's your view on changes that should happen in the IG community to strengthen it, John? Well, actually, I agree with both of those. Uh, of course, there are really two groups of IGs. One uh, group uh, um, are currently Senate uh, presidential, um, presidentially nominated, Senate confirmed, and that's roughly 30-some, 30 32 or so of the 70-some odd uh, IGs. The other group is uh, appointed by the agency heads. Uh, I think it certainly, for that group of about 40 IGs that are appointed by agency heads, I think it would certainly give them more independence uh, to be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, it gives, frankly, the, the Senate a, a bit of a voice and, and builds a connection between that IG or that um, inspector general office and the Senate in those confirmation mm -hmm. situations. As far as the term, the five-year term, uh, that, that aspect of, um, of an IG's tenure or an IG appointment is is certainly interesting. I personally would favor that. Uh, that was uh, debated widely among in the IG community back in 2008, uh, the last time we had really major reforms in the IG Act. Uh, and but for a variety of reasons, um, it, it wasn't put in in the act at the time. But uh, a five-year term uh, at that time, we the debate was around a seven-year term. Certainly makes sense. Uh, I often think that. Uh, you know, perhaps the greatest independence uh, of anyone is is our friend uh, uh, outside, perhaps a federal judge, is our friend Gene Dodaro at, at GAO. The uh, Comptroller General's term is 15 years. So, and I think those long terms are certainly put in place to to give uh, the person holding that office. It's a very difficult job to to have to begin with, uh, and the independence is is frankly is the greatest tool that an IG has. Jim and Taylor. Term, some degree guaranteed. Jim Taylor, a five-year term and Senate confirmation for all IGs. You on board with those ideas, or would you like to see them changed? Um, definitely Senate confirmed for all IGs, and probably five years. I'm not sure that's the right number, but definitely a term, um, because if you and if you go for the four cause removal, which makes a lot of sense. Um, you also want something to balance that. These aren't these aren't supposed to be jobs for life. So you, if you have a term limit combined with for cause removal, I think that would definitely strengthen it. The only problem you run into is there's that's what 30 some more uh, people nominated and confirmed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. You already have what 1,200 to 1,400 in that position, which would harm the other part of the letter that was sent by the former inspectors general, which is you know there's a delay. Jim, trying to get everybody to the Senate process. You have a unique perspective as also a former chief financial officer of a federal agency at Labor. What's the intersection between IG's independence and the necessity to go to the agency head to ask for budget every year? We have 30 seconds left, Jim. Well, yeah, sure. No, it's definitely, there's definitely that conflict. I mean, it's, you're part of the organization, you're part of the agency, you're not really independent as long as they have budget control over you. That's the bottom line. If you have the, if you don't have the budget, you don't have control.
Jim Taylor, thanks very much. John Reimer, thanks as well. Up next, remembering veterans on Memorial Day. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pandemic isn't stopping the National Cemeteries Administration at VA from prepping for its busiest weekend of the year. You're watching ABC7. This weekend, Americans will remember and honor their loved ones and others who died in the line of duty serving their country. It will be one of the busiest weekends of the year for veterans cemeteries the Department of Veterans Affairs administers. Randy Reeves is Undersecretary for Memorial Affairs at the Department of Veterans Affairs, head of the National Cemetery Administration. Randy, thanks very much for coming on the program. How do you and your colleagues prepare for Memorial Day every year? Each year across the nation, our our colleagues, uh, specifically our team members of the National Cemetery Administration, are preparing uh, our cemeteries so that they look their best to be able to honor those who are who have given their life for our country. We have a lot of partners across the nation, uh, including the Boy Scouts, including our support groups and many veterans groups across the country who will be with us, uh, not this year, physically because of, of the current pandemic, but most of them virtually. One of the things we're doing this year is we're using what's called the Veterans Legacy Memorial, where people will be able to participate and share uh, the stories of veterans and post tributes to them. Now, having said that, at all of our cemeteries, we will be doing wreath layings at every one of our cemeteries to honor our veterans and those who have given their lives for our country uh, in the way that, that they deserve. We won't have public ceremonies this year uh, as we are normally accustomed to, but we will continue to, to be able to honor them in every way possible. You, you kind of are going where I wanted to go next, which is how the virus has impacted, how the pandemic has impacted the work that you do and what goes on on a daily basis, not just Memorial Day at the cemeteries. Well, the thing that I really want to point out is the fact that all of our cemeteries have been open every day, and we have been doing interments every day to take care of our veterans and their families. Now, because of you know the restrictions across the country on large gatherings and those kind of things, we're doing things a little bit differently, but I have to just stress, our team has been working every day taking care of our veterans and their families. Uh, and making sure that they are getting the the honor and the dignity that they deserve. Now, one thing you didn't ask, uh, we are not currently doing all of the large committal shelters, that are committal uh, ceremonies we would normally do with uh, funeral honors and that sort of thing. Families will be able to come back after this pandemic uh, has passed and we're able to go back to full operations to be able to do those honors that our, our veterans and uh, their families deserve. How far ahead do you begin planning for Memorial Day every year? Is it uh, part of an ongoing preparation or is it just woven into the preparation and the work that you do every day to to be able to welcome the families and excuse me and other loved ones to come and visit? Well, because we rely on large groups of volunteers and we partner with the or a lot of organizations like what I uh, mentioned earlier, 
actually when Memorial Day ends one year, we're already starting planning for the following year. The bulk of the, the planning for logistics and that sort of thing actually happens about three, two to three months prior to actual Memorial Day. So that's when a lot of the heavy lift is done in the preparation. This year, unfortunately, we had to make some very difficult decisions uh, about how we would do things. And we took a lot of things online. We're doing a lot of things virtually, but we had to do that to make sure that we, at the same time we were honoring those who gave their lives for us, is that we were also keeping everyone else safe uh, in the process. How will you go about making the decisions to reopen or to give greater access uh, as time goes on, given that you have facilities in so many different places across the country? That actually is ongoing right now. Uh, we are assessing location by location, state by state, what the conditions are and when it will be actually uh, good to go to start bringing back uh, the normal services, committal services and honors uh, that our veterans and their families are, are used to. I would expect uh, pretty soon after Memorial Day in different parts of the countries, country that have started to come back and different parts of the countries that country that has not been affected quite as much, we'll start seeing with small groups bringing back those committal services. That won't happen everywhere all at once, but it will be a phased uh, re-entry or, or, or reopening. Uh, I, I really don't like to, to use that word reopening because we've actually been open the whole time, but all of those things will come back over the coming months. We just have a couple of minutes left, Randy. You have a long and distinguished career in Veterans Affairs and serving veterans. How do you commemorate Memorial Day personally every year? On a personal level, I take time to remember those that uh, have been lost and comrades of mine who unfortunately didn't come back from uh, the duty that they were serving in, whether it be wartime and, and, or other things. But every year I go to our cemeteries uh, as much as possible to be able to participate in those ceremonies. This year, I will be on, on this coming Friday, I will be in Riverside, California to help lay the wreath at that National Cemetery to honor all of our veterans uh, though, and our, our dead that, uh, that were lost. And then on Memorial Day, I will mm. actually be on Long Island in Calverton, New York to lay a wreath in honor of those who gave their lives for us. So I do it personally, remembering those people that I personally knew and and I also travel the country to share in those remembrances along with my comrades and my colleagues. Randy Reeves, thanks very much for your service and thanks for joining me to talk about your work today. Thank you. Up next, data driving decisions at the State Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new Center for Data Analytics and the future of data in diplomacy. You're watching ABC7. State Department is only one of the federal agencies using data as a tool in the fight against the coronavirus. 
The department calls it Center for Analytics, its first official enterprise-level data and analytics hub. Janice DeGarmo is Deputy Director in the Office of Management Strategy and Solutions at the State Department. Janice, thanks for coming on the program. What does the Center for Analytics do and who uses the data products that you put out at the State Department? Yeah, thanks Francis and thanks for having me. Uh, the Center for Analytics, what do we do? We aim to harness data to inform strategic foreign policy and operational decisions and advance our diplomatic mission. In terms of who uses it, everyone uses it. Where we are partnered with employees at all levels of the State Department, ranging from the post and mission level all the way up to senior leadership. Is it true that data is becoming kind of a, a similar worldview in organizations to cyber in that there are not just data teams, there are not just cyber teams, everybody is a data person, everybody is a data consumer, Janice? Is that, is that the way the State Department's looking at things? Yeah, Francis, that's that's exactly right. And when we look at the Center for Analytics priorities, it's not only to for the Center for Analytics to be able to solve some of our most pressing cross-enterprise, cross-functional business challenges, whether that be in the foreign policy space or the operational space, but it's to enable the rest of the State Department, meaning all of our foreign service and civil service colleagues around the world, to harness data to make decisions at their level, to enable them to stay ahead of their game and to give us that competitive edge. Is it part of the agenda of your organization to provide understanding of that and the importance of that to kind of help the cultural transformation of the State Department? Or is it just within the purvey of your organization to provide the data products, the tools and so on that people need? No, I, that's a great question. We. Absolutely, one of our pillars and priorities within the State Department is to really move our culture forward and doing so by enabling the State Department through training, through tools, and through technology. And that training piece and um, upskilling and building the capabilities of the State Department um, through data and analytics training is incredibly important. And we have a a great partnership with our training arm at the Foreign Service Institute to um, build and scale our training curriculum. As your personnel across the department has undergone this training, what have you learned are the major areas of improvement, I guess, the major skill gaps that your, uh, your personnel have to be able to get to where you need them to be to use data in the way that they should? Yeah, I think are we have um, really talented policy expertise at the State Department. And what we're aiming to do is to be able to augment that policy expertise with the ability to analyze the data and bring it into their toolkit. And so what we're seeing is courses like data acumen for executive and executives and managers data visualization, um, programming with our, our tools and courses that they can take to really fill that gap and be able to have both the qualitative um, skills as well as the quantitative skills. 
data as a strategic asset is a big part of the president's management agenda. Is there something that you're working for in the Center for Analytics toward the PMA specifically, or is it just, are, is it just that by fulfilling the overall mission of the Center for Analytics, you'll also fulfill what OMB wants the State Department to do data-wise? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, Francis. I think the president's management agenda specifically has a cross-agency priority goal that says, you know, each agency should leverage data as a strategic asset. For the State Department, the Center for Analytics fits that, that goal statement beautifully because that really is at the heart of our mission and our vision and our goals. It's um, the, the State Department's currency, frankly, is the data and information that it is unique to us by through all of our by way of all of our foreign service and civil service colleagues around the world that bring data and information um, to the table to the center for analytics enables us again to take it to the next level by augmenting it through complex and rigorous analytical models um, whether that be around measuring malign influence optimizing our footprint prioritizing strategic engagement in countries, um, measuring return on investment. All of those are what enable the State Department to use data as a strategic asset. And I'm excited that the CFA, the Center for Analytics, is part of that journey and, and progressing our, our, our momentum there. Janice DeGarmo of the State Department, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.